Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. As usual, it's Sean and his ever lovely and super smart looking this evening partner, Mike. Hey. <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that one. <laughs> so tonight's topic is, well, we'll call it not timely as it's this time of year, however it fit into our cycle. Uh, we're coming into the winter months here in North America, but we're going to be talking about heat, injury, and illness tonight. So a couple of disclaimers up front. So most of this information was provided through the Wilderness Medical Society and the Wilderness Medical Society practice guidelines for the prevention and treatment of heat-related illness. So shout out to our friends at the WMS. They actually have some good info out there. Heat-related injury averages around 600 deaths annually and is obviously associated with excessive heat exposure. Currently, heat-related illness is a leading cause of morbidity and mortality among U.S. high school athletes. A lot of people are I've talked to are kind of shocked about that, but it's young developing bodies with high metabolisms that exertionally push themselves higher than they probably should have in bad conditions. And it turns out that it becomes a bad thing. I think there's a lot of visibility getting put on this recently. What was it, two years ago that student in Ohio died on the field? Yeah, no, they've actually had this several times. Yeah, like especially in the early summer months when especially like high schools and colleges, their athletics programs are first starting back up and they're starting in doing two a day practices and old school coaches of we practice in a dehydrated state in the heat so that we can play at our best in these conditions. It's kind of like one of those, mm, not a good plan or we'll kill you. And yeah. Time. And that's the thing is they've had young student athletes like literally drop dead in the middle of the field. And it's, yeah, it's a pretty tragic thing, but it's, it's certainly something that's out there. And I know it certainly my, got more attention now than it did Oh, you know, 10, oh, 15 years ago. Absolutely. Like um, we talked about it in school years ago when we started, but yeah. that was about it. Like, hey, people get hot. Like, you should help them not be hot. And it's it's more formalized now as a serious medical thing that requires No, it is. And not to get off topic too much, but it's the same thing with like uh, concussion and TBI mm-hmm. among athletes, you know, especially the football players, that that's something people are aware of now and they're actually paying attention to. So, so with that, and we kind of hit on it there, but it's exertional heat stroke, right? It's not just you're sitting in an extremely hot environment and raising your core temperature. You're actually metabolically raising your body's core temperature through activity, right? And that approaches 10%. The mortality on exertional heat stroke approaches 10%. And then when presenting with hypotension, so if you're also dehydrated, it gets up towards 33%. So think about that. You know, if you're, Damn. yeah, say if you're, you're running, there's a crazy... I forget what the endurance race is. I don't remember if it's a marathon or a marathon. They run through Death Valley. So it's hot and you're dehydrated. Your chance of, of dying from this is now up in the 33 plus percent range. So one third. So that's not Use a medical hot. term. That's not insignificant. Right. Yeah. So that's actually like, wow. You know, that's like one of those one in three people that come down with a heat related illness in these conditions will die. So that's, it's, yeah, it's a pretty significant thing, right? And the outcome is directly attributed to both the magnitude and the duration of the hyperthermia making early recognition and treatment a priority, right? Just like a lot of things, heat-related illnesses can quickly become a life-threatening illness. And so early recognition, early treatment is key. So let's talk a little bit about what is hypothermia. At its simplest form, it's a rise in body temperature above the hypothalamic set point when heat dispensing mechanisms are impaired by clothing, insulation, drugs, or a disease process. Or you're overwhelmed by external 
i.e. it's hot out, or internal, i.e. metabolic problems, where you're producing more heat than you can mitigate, or your body can mitigate, and uh, either keep itself balanced internally, because the external environment is just too hot, or quite simply, you're producing too much heat, and there's nowhere for it to go. So for the purposes of wilderness medicine, we're primarily going to be talking about external hypothermia. I think you mean exertional. Excuse me. You're right. <laughs> exertional hypothermia. Environmental hypothermia is a thing, but typically in the wilderness setting, you're not going to, it's certainly possible to be sent to a campsite in Death Valley somewhere, if that's even a thing where people decided it was a good idea to camp in Death Valley, which is kind of like, <laughs> hey man, you know, when you get into a tent in the sun, it's hotter in the tent than it is outside. Like, that's pretty much as far as it goes. Like, don't do that. Yeah. So exertional hypothermia is really what we're focused on. And that's primarily what you're going to encounter as a provider being called to a patient that is experiencing symptoms and signs of a medical emergency. Exertional hypothermia, as I mentioned, it occurs when heat generated from activity accumulates faster than the body can dissipate via skin through uh, blood flow close to the skin and then the act of sweating to help dissipate the thermal energy that's being produced by the musculature through exertion. Ergo the term, exertional hypothermia. Medicine, amazing. <laughs> Medicine's amazing. <laughs> so there's four main types that we're going to cover. The heat injuries also come along with signs and symptoms, but at a high level, you've got heat cramps, which are kind of the warning sign, if you will. We've got heat syncope. Hey, it turns out if it's so hot and you've been exerting yourself and you pass out, that's not the best. Heat exhaustion which is really getting to the point where this is now a critical medical emergency. And then heat stroke, which is, that's uh, no bueno. So heat cramps. Signs and symptoms is quite simply, you're exercising and you end up with painful involuntary muscle contractions. Like we commonly call these cramps. Oh, they hurt. I've got cramps. They typically occur during or immediately after performing exertional efforts. That's a fancy way of saying I was exercising and I got some cramps. If the exertion is terminated, you will typically, with a little bit of help from some oral fluids, be able to mitigate the problem before it gets worse. So treatment for this is pretty simple. It's oral isotonic or hypertonic fluid. I'm not necessarily suggesting you puncture a bag and tell them to start drinking, but this is where we have to kind of be careful that we don't want to just flood the patient with water. The act of sweating does deplete electrolytes, so you need to be doing some electrolyte replacement as well. Sodium and your other electrolytes, this is where it's pretty easy to treat if you catch it early enough and the heat cramps are recognized, but you don't want to inadvertently push them into a secondary medical problem where you end up with sodium-potassium imbalances, electrolyte depletion, and then you end up flooding the body with regular old water, so to speak, and causing other problems. So. General rule of thumb, we've talked about this on some other podcasts, but I like diluting Gatorade. Oral rehydration tablets are great. Salt water. I mean, I, I have a close family member that constantly suffers from salt depletion and gets cramps all the time when exercising. She just mixes some salt into water and drinks that every evening per her doctor's recommendation. That has pretty much solved the problem for her. But just be aware that you want to kind of maintain some sort of electrolyte input along with the rehydration for cramps. Yeah, this kind of is the classic high school football coach telling you to walk it off. Yeah. yeah. To a certain extent, yes, walk it off a little bit. But yeah, I mean, you got to get back on those electrolytes. You got to do some rehydration. 
And you got to give those muscles a chance to recoup. Yeah. Quite frankly, you're cramping because you're dehydrated and you have an electrolyte problem that's starting. So just waiting for it to fix itself without any intake to mitigate the electrolyte problem is ultimately not going to be the best path to resolve. Yeah, no. No, and if you've ever seen somebody that actually has had heat cramps, they can be like impressively debilitating. It's, you know, when you see somebody who's got some pretty severe heat cramps, it's like, wow, it's more than just a mild cramp because you ran a little too far too fast. Yeah. So writhing in pain is not an uncommon description. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So leads us into uh, the next, not necessarily a level. I mean, while they kind of can go in order, this is definitely not something where your heat patients will go from heat cramps to heat syncope to exhaustion to stroke, right? They can go from working out fine to a heat syncope and then they're in heat stroke. So don't just assume that you're going to see all four of these phases, if you will. These are just different types, right? So the next one up is heat syncope, and it is essentially exactly as it sounds, transient loss of consciousness with spontaneous return of normal mentation, right? So again, this is, for those of us uh, who've done EMS in the South, this is when they got the vapors and the older patient kind of falls out at the old church, literally the old church, where it's packed full of bodies, it's getting hot and it's getting humid, and there's no air conditioning and good circulating air. And essentially, they just passed out. Well, they hit the floor. And with any other brief syncopal episode, once they go horizontal for a little bit, blood flow to the brain comes back and they're good to go. So if you think about the, the why, as Mike mentioned, right? Your body's trying to cool itself by cycling blood around the surface vessels and certain health conditions, we'll say, are more prone to this type of thing. So if you're messing with your normal circulatory function, you drop a little bit out of your, your cranial vault there. Next thing you know, your, your body's going to say, let's lay down for a minute and figure this back out. So what do we do for them? Smartly, you should remove them from the source. Don't keep them in the same environment that caused them to have this issue in the first place. Begin some passive cooling, right? That doesn't mean take the Gatorade bucket full of ice water and dump it on them. This is not what these folks need. Passive cooling, right? So just a little, a light fanning. If you have the facilities or a vehicle, then put them in there with the air conditioning and let their body start coming back down to a, a normal thermic temperature. If not, fan them as best you can, put them in the shade. For those of us actually working in the wilderness, austere environments, this is more realistic for us. And then again, provide them some oral isotonic or hypertonic fluids, right? So they are getting a bit dehydrated. Most people don't just pass out because they're hypertensive and they have super filled vasculature. There's usually a bit of dehydration that goes with this. It's, it's, I'm not going to go deep into it here, but it's probably worth note that this heat syncope can actually occur for expeditions and other events at altitude as well. Mm. If you're not properly managing your, your layers and your... When you stop, you put layers on. Sometimes we just get to the point where we just want to get to where we're going, right? You just want to keep exerting. It's really, even though it's, it's environmentally cold out, if you're overheating in the suit, you can have syncopal events. <laughs> they, those usually fix themselves pretty quickly with a little rehydration because, you know, once you quit moving, you've stopped creating the heat. If you let some of the heat out, you can come back to a pretty normal temperature. But I'm pointing that out not to say that it's a common occurrence, but that you can have heat syncope type events related to generating heat that are not necessarily in a hot environment. Yeah, right. So remember, exertional heat stroke or exertional heat illness is because of the exertion. Right. So yeah, if you're on an expedition and you're wearing a Patagonia down jumpsuit, like head to toe, like super fill down suit, yeah, and you're stepping it out, 
and a wee bit of sun pokes out and it gets a little bit warmer, your body core temperature is going to rise. And yeah, you can have these issues. And when uh, we will be having a follow-on episode about hypothermia, and I've got a great story that'll go along with that. We'll save it for the end of th- that episode, but it, it's good. Now I can't wait. <laughs> so now we're getting into, as we start talking through heat exertion, uh, excuse me, heat exhaustion, exertional exhaustion. I'm going to say all the E words together. <laughs> yeah. uh, Extraordinary. This is starting to get into an actual, what I would call a medical emergency. Right? This is not a, oh, we need to relax a little bit. Whether they get transported in a front country environment or not is somewhat irrelevant. Like when we get into heat exhaustion, this is a medical emergency. And without some sort of intervention, it can become bad, bad, bad. So heat exhaustion is defined as mild to moderate heat related illness owing to exposure to high environmental heat or strenuous physical activity. Uh, signs and symptoms can include intense thirst, weakness, discomfort, anxiety, dizziness, syncope. And this is where your core temperature may be, it may be normal or it could be slightly elevated. I don't personally carry rectal probe thermal units into the woods. <laughs> I but don't in general, anymore. Between 37 and 40 degrees Celsius, or for us Americans there, 98.6 to 104 degrees Fahrenheit. At 104, you're in a bad way. Yeah. Like that's that's going to require intervention quickly. So the story earlier about the football players and such, this is where EMS systems now are starting to go to tacos or if you're getting into the 102, 104 degrees Fahrenheit, they need active cooling. So that's on the extreme end of the heat exhaustion space. But if you're getting to 104 degrees, you're in a bad way. So at this point, it's kind of mostly the same steps, right? Like if there are things external to the body that are causing the heat, well, let's remove them from that. If we can get them into the shade, let's do that. If they're in an environment that we can control, let's control the environment, turn on the air conditioner, et cetera, et cetera. This is where we start thinking about active evaporative or corrective cooling, right? This is where we want to start cooling the skin. I am not a huge fan in general of just dumping people into ice unless they're absolutely on the threshold of bad, bad stuff. Can be a shock to the system. If you don't have history on the patient, you can certainly cause other problems by shocking their system that way. And again, just like before, oral isotonic or hypotonic fluid replacement If your patient is altered or is unable to maintain their airway, this is where I would start thinking about room temperature fluids to support that via IV, not orally. But it is heat exhaustion is not a thing that you kind of go, huh, took 10 minutes, treated it, we're good. Like this patient probably needs some extended care and we need to be managing this aggressively. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, heat exhaustion is, as Mike duly pointed out, is the first of what we'll call the actual heat emergencies, right? This needs to be treated. And you need to be fairly aggressive with it, which brings us up to the big one that everybody's, most people remember from school or in reading and lectures and various things. Whenever we're talking about heat-related things. EMS providers do some reading and go to lectures? Okay, some do. Okay. Many do not. Anyway, different story. Mike and I are currently having a jolly time at, (laughs) at a convention. At a convention. So heat stroke, right? So Defined severe heat-related illness characterized by a core temperature greater than 40 Celsius or 104. So, man, you've crossed that threshold, and that is a bad, bad thing, right? Especially humans do not like to get super hot, especially the brain and a lot of your internal organs, right? It's just not a thing, right? Central nervous system abnormalities such as altered mental status, a little brain swelling begins. Uh, These can also show up as seizures, coma-like states. And this is something you can also see, especially the coma-like state in your, we'll call the classic heat stroke, where it's really all about environment and not necessarily the exertion. And certainly 
strenuous exercise, right? As wilderness and austere providers, okay, depending on where you work in an austere environment, I've been on some big gray boats down in the engine compartments, which get incredibly hot, where you could see some of the more, we'll call passive heat injuries come up, same thing. And then, yeah, you get those guys that are actually doing hard work down there and exertional heat exhaustion, heat stroke is a thing. So it's not just in the woods. This can be depending on your environment. I imagine there are some places on gas oil platforms. I've been on them, but I've never been able to get into some of the inner workings of some of these places that have similar environments that are just hot and humid. And there's guys in there doing hard work. So, you know, if you're one of those medics that's working offshore oil, you're working on a ship someplace. Yeah, these are these are other places. It's not just out here in the woods or the desert, wherever your environment is, and it just being hot and guys getting exertional heat stroke due to severe strenuous activity. And as Mike mentioned in one of the earlier ones, at this point, the person is no longer able to compensate for the increases in temperature and their body just simply begins to shut down. So what are we going to do for that one? Just like all the others, immediately, as best you can, get them out of the source. So if they're out there in the middle of the sun, on a trail, out there in the work environment, get them out of it. Get them as someplace as cool as you possibly can. In Mike and I's case, in the wilderness environment, it's, it's, it's realistically, it's just in the shade. And think you might have to, if you carry a tarp, depending on your, where you're at, you might have to build that shade, but you've got to get them out of that heat, okay? It's important to note, you got to do it. Oh, yeah, like, no, there's... They're beyond the point where they can, anything you do can help them compensate with the fact that yeah. they're experiencing heat-related problems. You have to reduce the environment around them yeah, to help you, them mitigate this. Exactly. Yeah, this isn't like heat cramps where it's like getting around the environment is good, not as important, where this one, heat exhaustion, heat stroke especially, you got to get them out of the environment. Next one's obviously, we're all EMS providers, well, most of us here that listen, even for our wilderness first aiders, wilderness first responders, monitor and treat your ABCs, right? Airway, breathing, circulation, those are your big three. And obviously that applies across the board, no matter what your specialty is or your level. Cold water immersion, this is some places you will see if you ever work event support for marathons or other adventure type races, long endurance athletic events, even on the sidelines of high school, college athletics, Mm -hmm. uh, they will have ice baths set up and ready so that if a player comes down with one of these issues, they pick him up and they drop him immediately into a giant, essentially, plastic swimming pool or other device filled with ice water. And they just start cooling him. Now, that's awesome. Not always necessarily available for us wilderness and austere providers. So if you are, you know, there's a few places where Mike and I do most of our wilderness work that have some nice streams. With extremely rare exception, one of my favorite mantras is there's no such thing as warm mountain water, right? So it's going to be cooler than the ambient temperature. So if you're near a stream on a popular hiking trail, yeah, pick your patient up, plop them in the water and get that cool water running over their bodies. Now, clearly, make sure you keep their head above water, protect their airway. Let's don't get too overzealous with it and use a little caution and don't just plop them down on some sharp rocks and some other things and create more problems. And if it's, if it's a body of water that you cannot safely manage placing your patient into and you suddenly create a swift water rescue scenario, well, That's bad provider. Bad provider, right? Think about it before you just go put them in the cold water, right? The cold water immersion is the preferred immediate treatment modality. After that, evaporative or convective cooling. This is where if you've got cold water, you just start just dropping it all over them and then fanning them, right? So we didn't discuss it. We're hoping most everybody here is familiar with the, the methods of heat loss. 
right? Here, convection and conduction, right? So you want to start fanning that cold stuff. So the evaporative process starts and start pulling that cold air or that heat away from the body. And it'll kind of, you're artificially producing sweat or the activities that sweat would do for you normally. So you got to get on that. IV hydration, they're obviously most likely going to be dehydrated. I would venture to say that that would almost be the rule, not the exception. Mm -hmm. So beginning IV fluids, um, we are going to talk about in another episode the role of IV fluids. And you know, I'm sure the episode will eventually morph into both heat and cold-related injuries. But here's the bottom line, folks. They don't do very much for you, especially in the pre-hospital environment. It doesn't matter if you've got a, the best fluid warmer out there. You can be putting you know, 110-degree fluid into somebody. It's not going to make that big of a shift. I'm not saying don't do it if you have it available. What I'm saying is it's not going to cure them. So same thing, putting chilled IVs into somebody is going to do very, very, very little in terms of their overall reduction in in internal body temperature. Yeah, think of it as you're supporting the hydration requirements of the body to be able to move fluid around and get the heat out as well as possible. Yes. Dropping cold fluid into someone's veins, I don't care how hot they are, can cause other things like cardiac arrhythmias and other problems like that. The the big, big concern here is the brain. When the brain gets that hot, the brain's in a bad way. Yeah, your brain is... Again, this is kind of a theme within EMS that every provider at every level, whether you're a wilderness first aider up through physicians, right? Everybody should know that the brain is extremely sensitive. Mm -hmm. It's got its narrow operating parameters and it does not want to be short sugar. It does not want to be short oxygen. It doesn't want to be too cold. It does not want to be too hot, Mm -hmm. right? It, It has a very narrow, we'll call, yeah, I mean, operating set of parameters for it. It just, it has to stay in those things and getting very, very hot your brain does not like it at all. And if you want to start reading up on this, there's some long-term issues. You know, you get into the hypothalamus, which is, you know, kind of where your body's part of the brain that helps regulate temperature and stuff. You do damage to it through heat or cold. You just become more susceptible to those same injuries later on because you've damaged that part of your brain that helps you control them. Anyway, enough of that. So get your IV started. Start flowing a bolus. Again, hypotension is a thing. Um, You've got to support their ability to maintain the rest of their volume flow right? Perfusing the organs, perfusing the brain, perfusing the heart. If they're super dehydrated and their blood is just sludge, yeah, throwing in a liter or two of normal saline. This is one of those instances where, cool, if you can give them a couple liters, give them a couple liters, right? Now, we don't want to flood them like five liters down the road, right? Let's be reasonable. But this is one of those times where dropping a large amount of fluids fairly quickly into your patients is not a bad thing. Yeah, they... They certainly need to urinate. That is not a bad thing either, right? We're, no. We're removing heat from the kidneys and such yes, through I, that urination. I'm all about validating kidney function. Yep. <laughs> right? And so the biggest one, right, the best thing you can do for a heat stroke patient is evacuate them to definitive care. And definitive care really is a legit clinic or hospital. There are some hospital-based treatment modalities that are out there, cardiac and gastric lavages and some things that are just way over the top. And we are certainly not going to discuss them here. That depending on the literature you read, may or may not be super useful either. But the biggest thing is you've got to get them in a controlled environment. And the best thing about a hospital is, I don't know if you've ever been in an ED that's warm. I personally have not been. They tend to always be cold. Yep. There's kind of a reason for some of that. Not always, but so you got to get them evacuated. So this is, without a question, this is a life-threatening emergency and you have to do everything you can to get your heat stroke patient evacuated. And in the meantime, get them in the shade, start cooling them with whatever means you have available. Even if that means just dousing them in water and fanning them as best you can, get a bunch of volunteers and their foam mats around them and just fanning, right? And trying to keep them wet, do your best. Okay. That's all you really can do. Get your IV access, 
If you're able to do any other more advanced diagnostics, of course, doing your normal blood pressures, absolutely get on that. You want to keep trending. You want to know what's going on, getting better, getting worse. Getting a glucose might not hurt. The big differentiator, common one, and I'm sorry I missed this earlier, like how do I know if they've crossed over 104 degrees into heat stroke? The big one is, is an altered mental status. That's not to say your heat exhaustion patient can't be altered, but your heat stroke patient, you got to think you're baking the brain, right? They will be altered. They will be altered, and they will be fairly significantly altered. So you need to be aware of it. It is worth note, we're pointing out very explicitly that evacuation to definitive care is an absolute must. However, if your patient is over 104 degrees or you suspect that your patient is over 104 degrees, you absolutely positively must do whatever you can to mitigate that temperature right now. Oh, yes. Do not... If you're weighing like, well, we've got a crew here to carry them out and it's going to be a two-hour extrication, we should get going toward that. No, you absolutely need to get them into the creek first. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And do what you can to bring their temperature down, and then they need to be evacuated to definitive care. Yeah. And again, this is, uh, this is going to be situationally dependent, but like for Mike or I, if we were on a call like this and we were down trail, even a couple of miles, and you've heard us talk about this before, that, that really is even a couple of miles can be a huge time suck. In that couple hours where I'm waiting for a carryout crew to arrive with all the necessary kit, if I'm not just soaking my patient and fanning the ever-loving hell out of them until my arms are cramping, man, I'm doing it wrong, right? So just, it's not a one-time, oh, dump a quarter or two on them, fan them a little, and let's wait for the stretcher to get here. No, man, this is a constant nonstop. And yeah, like I said, if you have that nice moving body water, cool mountain lake with a shallow Mm -hmm. little place you can walk in with your patient and submerse them, do it. I'm sure somebody in the audience is going to go, oh, but wait, what if I go too far? Yeah, cool. that stinks. It happens, right? We know how to solve for that too, though. And that's generally slightly easier to solve than right? yeah, taking so brain. It's, uh, yeah, it's better for them to be too cold than too hot. It is one you can do. So it's use your best judgment. A lot of places have protocols for this, like five minutes of immersion, 10 minutes out, five minutes in immersion. And it's so you're cooling them, but you're not keeping them in this cold environment. And now, again, this will also depend on how cold that water is. If I'm in a Norwegian fjord where it's damn near literally ice water coming off a glacier or something, yeah, that's definitely a little bit different than where Mike and I are at, right? So, yeah, yeah, I mean... It's so it's situationally dependent, but I think it's worth note here that we haven't talked a whole lot about medications and fancy ALS things and intubations and all those other things. Like, yeah, you should be maintaining airway and yeah, you can get IVs and get some fluids on board. That's nominally going to help, but this is really, truly like... You got to cool Heat down. and cold. It's BLS before ALS. No, oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. right? So yeah, the, what's going to save a heat stroke patient? Cooling them down. Yep. Right. It's not going to, well, I wouldn't say it's not going to be the intubation. Like if they're losing an airway, yeah, obviously. But what's going to save them is cooling down. Right. So as a wellness provider, you need to be on the lookout for the signs and symptoms of heat injuries. You need to know what your meds are. And I'm not just saying the meds you're carrying and are they useful for this? Are you going to give Tylenol or Motrin? to a patient in heat exhaustion or heat stroke, I'm going to bring their fever down. The answer is no, because it's not a fever, right? Those aren't going to do anything but give them Motrin and Tylenol and stress the kidneys and liver a bit in their condition. Yep. So yeah, you're not bringing a fever down, right? This is not a fever. Know your pathophysiology, right? I got to understand why they're hot, what's happening to their bodies when they're hot and they're in their conditions, which should help guide your treatment plan, which your treatment plan is simple. Remove from the environment, cool them, and evacuate them, right? Big ones. And along with meds and pathophysiology, you need to know what other patient medications and pathophysiologies or illnesses they have that can lead to these things, right? So patients with hyperthyroid problems, 
right? There are candidates, diabetes can, patients, diabetic medicines. There are a lot of other medications out there that can help lead to increased core temps. That if you know your patients on those, it doesn't really change what you're going to do for them, except confirm that, yeah, this is most likely a situation. And you're probably not going to see it so much with heat stroke, but even simple things like calcium channel blockers, right? Beta blockers. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. If they can't get their heart rate up to help move yes. the circulation around to manage the thermal environment they're in, right? Yeah. We're, we're kind of getting back to grandma at the church sort of situation. Exactly. Yeah. Very good point. If they're sitting there with a pulse rate of 85 and their body can't seem to raise it to 100, 110 to help move that fluid around inside the vasculature, that can be a problem that you just need to be aware of. Yeah. And I would say when it comes to your patients and their medications and their medical history, this really gets into if you're working expedition or site medicine, and these are kind of like your pre-trip questionnaires. So knowing, so maybe you're doing one of these jungle treks through Borneo for some tourist group. I don't know, mm -hmm. right? You might want to know, hey, it's going to be hot. It's going to be humid. We're in an environment where it's already hard for humans to lose the heat their bodies are generating because sweat is not as effective in these human environments. And Mr. Johnson He's got this condition. He takes these meds, which start to already put him in a dangerous category for elevating his body core temperature. Things you might be aware of. Like I said, in the actual scene call where you roll up on trail or at your job site and you're like, oh, well, it doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't matter how it got to that point. If you're suspecting one of these major heat illnesses, the treatments are the same. You're not going to be trying to yeah, counteract any some somebody's diabetic medications or right. the cocaine they decided to snort and then in the hiking. Death Valley. I don't do, know. Doing an endurance race to stay awake and win. So, yeah. yeah. That's how I do them. <laughs> <laughs> living on the edge, this man. Always living on the edge. All right, folks. So we're going to kind of wrap up with this. And here's the big takeaway. And this is something I used to always preach to my wellness first aid students. If you're not sure if it's heat exhaustion or heat stroke, it's heat stroke. Let a physician tell you otherwise. Okay. Always treat for that worst case scenario, especially with heat related illness, right? That borderline 103 or 104, man, if they're hot, they're dehydrated, and they're starting to get altered, it's worst case scenario, right? Treatment modalities are essentially the same, so treat it, okay? If you know you're working in an environment where exertional heat-related illnesses might be a thing, plan for it, and if possible, is it within the realm of possibility to have ice staged somewhere for an ice bath? Maybe it is, maybe it's not. This is more of a a almost fixed site location, or maybe you are working with some guiding service expedition or something, and you know there's a local body of water that's fairly close, map out where it is, you know, flag it so that you know exactly what trail you're going to take with the patient to get down there. Things like that. Big ones, evacuate as soon as possible, right? Heat syncope, heat cramps, those you can evaluate your patients, do a little observation, and it could be a treat and release situation with them. Heat exhaustion, heat stroke, they need to be evacuated. They need to be evaluated by a physician. And it's important to note that we're not just saying they need to be evacuated because that's the ultimate end result for EMS in general, right? Wilderness, mm. austere medicine, sometimes evacuation isn't always possible. But it's important to note here that if they've gotten to the point of heat exhaustion or heat stroke, it's not just a thermal problem now. There's all kinds of electrolyte imbalances, secondary effects that can occur. They need to see somebody with a higher level of care than can be provided on scene to make sure that everything else did not get cattywampus or that there was no injury. You know, you can have things like kidney injury, internal organ injury from extreme heat for an extended period of time, and they need to be checked for that to make sure that there is not something else going on. So 
when we get to the extreme side of this, the heat exhaustion, the heat stroke, they need to go to a, a definitive care facility for evaluation at a minimum. The party's kind of over at that point. It's, it's time to go to the doctor place. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really about it. I had one other thought. Oh, just uh, a bit of an administrative housekeeping note with this. So after this episode, hyperthermia, we're going to have some coming out. Hypothermia, which would be a bit more applicable for those of us in the northern hemisphere right now as we're moving in toward the winter, colder months. And then after that, starting in, I think, the remainder of this year, starting in some time next year, we're going to start discussing some of the wilderness medical societies, some of their other practice guidelines. And we're going to kind of try and interpret some of those that are not as clear cut to the, we'll call it pre-hospital in the field environment. Some of them are still very much geared towards physicians in a hospital or a larger clinic have access to tools and equipment and medications that a lot of us simply do not. So we're going to... Like nurses. <laughs> well... I mean, I know a couple of really cool nurses that do a lot of wilderness work. Oh, yeah, good point. They still come with the same backpack I do. So <laughs> so we're going to start talking about some of that, getting into some of the other, we'll call it operational considerations for some of these common wilderness injuries and illnesses. If you have any suggestions or some topics you'd like to hear about, Mike will, as always, give you the information. And with that, I think that's about it for today. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com, or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.